Julie Dolan, who plays the piano so beautifully, were just gathered over there praying that God would make them a blessing. And he did. Thank you for that. I am glad to be back after another trip away. I always miss being here. Everywhere I go, I run into people who say to me, I wish I had the privilege to be at the Master's College. Uh, they, they have heard about us all across this country, and there are so many, many young people that wish they could be a part. I also run into a lot of adults who'd like to be here, some who'd like to be on the faculty and uh, just experience all that God is doing in our school. We are really privileged. God has blessed us in such profound ways. And I know you sense those blessings as I do. Sometimes when I go away and, and people say to me, we hear that God has touched your school and that it's remarkable what he's doing. We wish we could be a part. I'm reminded again of the fact that God is so good to us. I want to add my personal greeting to you men who are here from the IFCA. It's a pleasure to have you. We really rejoice that you're with us for this day. I was ordained in the IFCA too many years ago. And um, at this present time, still a member. In fact, the other day I met with Dick Gregory, who's the new president of the new, what do you call him? Executive director of the IFCA, and uh, we had a good time of fellowship. I'll be looking forward to speaking, I think, at the convention in 1989. And uh, getting together with you men there for a few minutes anyway after our chapel this morning. As I was thinking uh, about what I might share with you and the time... Uh, that I have to think about it is after my Sunday night sermon and before Monday chapel, so it's squeezed in there a little bit. But as I was thinking about it last evening after church, I went up to my office down at the church and just asked the Lord to lay upon my heart something that I might bring with you to you this morning. My mind was drawn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'd like you to take your Bible, if you will, and look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In thinking about how God has privileged us so greatly and profoundly here at the college in just a brief amount of time, and how he is also blessed and is blessing in the seminary as well, I was reminded of the fact that the Apostle Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 a danger sign, a warning sign to people who are unusually privileged. Privilege has with it tremendous responsibility. And this is a powerful and somewhat dramatic passage expressing the danger of spiritual privilege. Let's look at verse 1. Let me read it to you just down through verse 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 
No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Now what that passage basically is doing is taking us back to the history of Israel and reminding us that a whole nation, tremendously privileged, a whole nation fell in judgment. Given the greatest privileges, they experienced the most severe judgment. And this, says the Apostle Paul, is a warning. It happens, he says, in verse 11, as an example written for our instruction, who happen to be living at the end of the ages, that is, the time since the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The key to the passage is verse 12. Do you remember that verse? Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he what? He fall. It's just at the time when everything seems to be going best that we may be most vulnerable. The Corinthians were overconfident. They felt they were so privileged, so blessed, that they could abuse those privileges. They could flaunt their freedom in Christ. They ignored the need for self-denial in their lives. They rejected self-control, and they lived in an undisciplined liberty, and as a result were on the edge of disaster. This is a very, very important warning. If you read the whole epistle to the Corinthians, all of 1 Corinthians, you find that there were many sins in that church. There were factions, there was pride, contention, strife. There was a desire on the part of some to live in sin, even to the degree where there was incest, as mentioned in chapter 5. Christians were suing other Christians. There were wrong relationships in singleness and marriage. There were people engaging in idolatrous activities. There were women overstepping the bounds of God's design priority for them. There were people engaging in ecstatic languages that were not of God, but were really of Satan. There was a lack of love in that church. There was confusion about theology. There were a lot of problems in that church. And it came down, bottom line, to the fact that they were so privileged, so blessed, that they took that for granted. And they failed to exercise the spiritual means to live a disciplined and godly life. The illustration of Israel is given to them here to point out the danger of spiritual privilege. The Israelites experienced God's blessing incredibly great privileges, and yet nearly all of them died in the wilderness. The danger of the misuse of spiritual privilege. And I guess I have to confess to you that back in the back of my mind and always lingering in my heart is the very obvious fact that we who have been so privileged here at the Master's College could be in danger too. Because if we ever take the privileges for granted and assume that the blessing of God means that we can do anything we want or live any way we want, then God may take his hand off and we may know not the blessing of God but the judgment of God. You are always on my heart. You are always in my prayers every day. 
I prayed for you this morning repeatedly as I was awaking in my bed and as I gathered together with some of the administrators and as I have thought even in between those formal times of prayer of you, a prayer always rises to God. I found myself praying for all of us at the college even as I was walking down the hall in just a moment of time. That simply to point out to you that I always have you in my heart as the Apostle Paul expressed it. And my prayer is that in the midst of the tremendous blessing of God, we might not lose sight of the responsibility that we have. They had great privilege in Corinth. They had been pastored by Paul. They had been founded by the Apostle Paul. They were familiar not only with the teaching of Paul, but with the teaching of Peter and with the teaching of Apollos. They were tremendously privileged, and yet they stood on the brink of judgment. And it's very instructive for us to learn what the Apostle says to them here. Let's look first of all at the assets that the church in Corinth is reminded of in the history of Israel. Verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, and here he's referring to the nation Israel, were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. By the way, verse 2 mentions all, verse 3 mentions all, and verse 4 mentions all. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the privileges that our fathers had. And this is to instruct you about being careful about your own privileges. Five times in these verses, the word all is used. And it stresses that without exception, the people of Israel knew the blessing of God. Without exception. And we have all those same kinds of blessings here. We have seen the hand of God, even as they had in Corinth. And everyone was a beneficiary to one degree or another. But notice what he says. First of all, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, what does this mean? Well, they were all under the, the cloud that led them, you remember, by day and led them by night as well. A cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. They were all under that cloud. What does that mean? They'd all experienced divine leading. They had all experienced the guidance of God. It says in Exodus 13:21 that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them. So they had known the leading of God, the directing of God. God was blazing that trail. Secondly, they passed through the sea. They not only knew the leading of God, but they knew the deliverance of God. When I look back on the two short years of this college since I've been here, I tell you, it's obvious that we've been under the leading of God. God has led us step by step. We can chronicle day after day, week after week, month after month, the leading of God. Not only has he led us, but he's delivered us. There were times early on when we didn't have the resources to do anything. We didn't have the payroll for the next day, and God in His grace met that. And so, here is a reminder to the Corinthian church of the people of Israel who had known the leading of God and known the deliverance of God, and so had the Corinthian church. They too knew that. Tremendous blessing. Notice verse 2. And all were baptized, if I may let me substitute the word immersed, all were immersed into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now what does that mean? 
Some people think it means they were immersed in the water when they went through the sea, but that's the opposite of what happened. The sea parted and they weren't immersed in it at all. Some people think they were sprinkled by a cloud as they walked along, but it was the Shekinah glory cloud, not a rain cloud. They went through the sea dry and the cloud was dry too, so in what way were they baptized or immersed into Moses? Well, immersed in the sense of identification. You know, it says in Romans 6 that we were immersed into Christ or baptized into his death and into his resurrection. It means we were united with him. And here is the idea of them all being united as one community under a God-appointed leader. They are identified as one community with their leader. Together they are under the one that God chose. They have been immersed into a new community belonging to one another in a beautiful wonderful unity and that's exactly what happens in the church that's what happened in Corinth a new fellowship a new community united under the headship of Jesus Christ and that's true here God has made of us one community of people he's brought us together as a fellowship of intimacy we live together we study together we sleep together we eat together We enjoy fellowship at all dimensions of life together. And so, like the people of Israel, we have known divine leading, divine deliverance, and we have known the sense of divine community. God having put us together in a unique family. Verse 3, and all ate the same spiritual food. Now, this does not refer to the cafeteria. That's physical food. It means divine provision. In their case, it was a a physical provision. It was manna. And they all drank the same spiritual drink, it says in verse 4. And this simply means they had known the provision of God. They had known the sustaining, nourishing grace of God. And then in verse 4, it says they drank from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. The spiritual rock is Christ. In other words, they were being, follow this, sustained by Christ himself. You say, well, even before he was incarnate? Yes. Perhaps under the term of the angel of the Lord, but nonetheless it was Christ. You see, all people at all times who belong to God come to God through Christ. It doesn't matter which side of the cross you're on, Christ is the way to God, and all those who belong to God have come by way of Christ, so in a sense they're all his people. As Christ nourishes and sustains his church on this side of the cross, so it was Christ who nourished and sustained his chosen people on that side of the cross too. And the manna and the water were the evidence of the sustaining ministry of the pre-incarnate Christ. All the redeemed are Christ's of Old Testament time and New Testament time, and he is the source of blessing on all. So let me sum up what we've said. What were the assets? What were the benefits, the privileges? Well, they had known the guidance of God. They had known the deliverance of God. They had known the identification with God in a new community of people who belonged to Him. And they had known the sustenance of God. Tremendous privileges. I see that such a parallel to what we've experienced here. The goodness and the grace and the kindness of God toward us. Providing us with such rich spiritual privilege. But, verse 7, this is the sad part. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not what? 
well pleased. With most of them. The authorized says many, but it literally is most. In fact, all but two, Joshua and Caleb, died without ever entering the promised land. And listen to this, there probably were as many as two million of them. And God wasn't pleased with all but two. In Numbers 14, 16, it says, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore to give to them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. And it says in verse 5, they were laid low. That means strewn like corpses all over the wilderness. They never entered the promised land. They were disqualified. Tremendous spiritual privilege. They had known the leading of God in a personal and intimate way. They had known the deliverance of God from an impossible dilemma and situation again and again. They had known the identification with the people of God in a new and blessed community that was one with the God-appointed leader. They had known the sustenance of God every single day when he delivered to them the manna and provided for them the water. And in spite of that great spiritual privilege, God was not pleased and he strewn their carcasses all over the wilderness. They never entered the promised land. It's tragic, and Paul feared, of course, that the same thing could happen to the Corinthians. If they didn't practice self-denial and self-control and use those means of grace which God by His Spirit provided, they too could forfeit the blessing of God. What went wrong? I want you to follow this. Let's look at verse 6. From the assets to the abuses. What went wrong? Now these things happened as examples for us. Here comes the first one. That we should not crave evil things as they also craved. The first thing that went wrong was they craved evil things. They lusted after evil things. Literally, they were longers after evil things. That was the first of their abuses. They took their spiritual privilege for granted, and they were characterized by lusting after evil things. Lust implies a compelling desire, a driving force. And the evil things were held out for them by the world. As John says, the world is passing away in 1 John 2, 15 to 17. But nonetheless, it still attracts us with its lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. They were, as somebody said, sleeping too close to where they got in. They had been delivered from Egypt. They had been delivered from the world. They had been emancipated as might be expressed and in their newfound freedom were being sustained by God but they slept too close to where they got in and they hankered for the world if we had time we could go back and read about how they cried out against their leadership and said we miss all of the food we had in Egypt and we miss all the comforts we had in Egypt and why have you put us out here in the desert read Psalm 78 18 to 31 and you can see the whole chronicle of all these things they had been freed from Egypt. They'd been led by God. They'd been immersed into a people 
that belonged to God. They'd been blessed and sustained by God himself, but they were disqualified for service to God. They died in the wilderness because they lusted for evil things. Liberty often, listen carefully, liberty, freedom often opens the door and lust for the world enters. When you came to this school, we give you, as we always have, the opportunity to be free in Christ, to enjoy the liberty of walking in Christ. And it is true that when the door to liberty is open, if you're not on guard, the lust of the world will walk right through that door. That happened then. It even happens now. There was a second sin in verse 6. Now, these things happened, it says, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters, verse 7, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now, this really hit the issue in Corinth. Not only were they lusting after evil things, but they were going back to their old idolatrous activities. Back to festivals where false gods were being worshipped. Back to social events that were held at the temples of false gods. In chapter 11, he says, you can't come to the Lord's table and then go back to the table of demons. You can't be going back and forth between true worship and the worship of idols, which is what they were trying to do. They were engaging in the celebrations of their old religious society. They were so tied to idols, so tied to the social structure of their former life that they never cut the cord. They were barely out of Egypt, Israel, barely out of Egypt, and they made a golden calf. Barely delivered from idolatry and right back into it. The Corinthians, barely out of the evil idolatry of their society, and they went right back into it. A fatal compromise. Back into idol practices. The line, you see, between the old life and the new life gets blurred, and idolatry creeps in. Freedom is abused when spiritual privilege is taken for granted. They went back to their old lifestyle. That's the idea. And young people, let me tell you, that's going to be your temptation. One, to lust after evil things. Two, to fall back into patterns of your old lifestyle. The way you used to live. The things you used to do before you came to Christ. Before you came here. That's the pressure. Notice that phrase there. That sentence, actually, verse 7, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. That's taken right out of the Old Testament text. What it means is they got engaged in idle feasts. The word play suggests illicit sexual dancing. It suggests the whole kind of orgiistic activity. Fertility rites. I remember on one of my trips to the Middle East, I had the privilege to be in Beirut, Lebanon, and then to take a, a taxi cab east, or a bus, I guess, at that point, east to Baalbek. Baalbek, at one point in time, was the easternmost border of the ancient Roman Empire. But Baalbek was one of the great cities where the pagans lifted up the worship of Baal. It also is a place where they worshiped Bacchus. You've heard of a Bacchanalian feast? 
They worshipped Bacchus by getting drunk, committing sexual acts, and then in, in the temple, which still stood at the time I was there, and I think it still does, magnificent temple. All the pillars have vines with grapes on them, celebrating Bacchus, the god of wine. In the middle of the floor of the temple is a huge pit where the people vomited after they had indulged and gorged themselves. And they would go vomit and go back and, and engage in gluttony again and commit all kinds of sexual immorality. An incredible thing, the fertility rites of the Canaanite worship of Baal. This is the kind of thing that people come out of and came out of in the Roman Empire time. The Corinthian society was so immoral that the verb to Corinthianize meant to go to bed with a prostitute. And these people were coming out of that society and out of that thing and they were going right back into it. Just as in the case of the text in verse 7, the children of Israel came out of Egypt and went right back into the fertility kind of orgiistic life that they had known in Egypt. It even says in Exodus 32 that they were naked. They took their clothes off, engaged in gross immorality. It also says in Exodus 32 that... God killed 3,000 men in one day for doing that. And the whole nation bore the guilt. The Corinthians were into very much the same kind of thing. And young people, the real pressure comes, one, to lust after evil things that the world holds out, and two, to fall back into the patterns of your old lifestyle. Verse 8, he says there's the third sin, and they're all connected nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day lust after evil things and idolatry and immorality are all sisters you can go back and read the account of numbers 25 how the people perished because of their of their immorality i don't know if you remember this but the main temple in corinth was dedicated to the deity Venus and in the worship of Venus vile corrupt sexual deviation was engaged in and some of the Corinthians no doubt were going back and doing that kind of thing and here they are warned that God slew 20 plus thousand people for doing it in the past 23,000 and he's the same God today and they're walking on very thin ice the abuses then here of these people, lusting after evil things, idolatry, immorality. There's a fourth one. Look at this one in verse 9. Nor let us try or better test the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Numbers chapter 21. You remember God sent snakes to bite them all. What do you mean test the Lord? Push, push, push to see how far you can go. That's the issue. Just test the limits of God's patience. How far would God go in letting them abuse his love and his grace and his goodness? You know, it's so sad when, when people have the attitude, how far can I go and still get away with it? Rather than how much like Jesus Christ can I be? That's, a, that's the question you want to ask. That's a serious issue, testing God. 
The children of Israel tested God. They pushed God's patience to the very limit. And the Corinthians were doing the same thing. And God is a God of vengeance against sin. God is a God who hates and chastens sinners. Hates sin, I should say, and chastens sinners. Ask yourself an honest question, right? What do you know you're doing you shouldn't do? Ask yourself that question. What do you know you're doing you shouldn't do? And you're testing God's patience. Testing His grace. Just how far He'll let you go before He drops the hatchet. Don't test God. There's a fifth sin mentioned in verse 10. Nor grumble or complain, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. You say, how in the world did complaining get in here with all this real serious stuff? Complaining is real serious. Murmur. That's audible expression of unwarranted dissatisfaction. Griping. Complaining. Exodus 16.2 says the whole congregation of Israel grumbled, murmured, complained. They sat in, God, in judgment on God. Can you believe that? I don't like my circumstances, God. I don't like what you're doing in my life. I don't like the way you've laid things out for me. I don't like what you're taking me through. I want to tell you how to do it. By the way, 14,700 people died for complaining. Can you imagine what would happen to the church of Jesus Christ if God just instantly killed everybody who complains? Tremendous thought. All of us who are pastors could rejoice in such a prospect. Death to the complainers, God says. You don't want to complain. Why? Listen to me. Complaining is not just simple complaining. It is shaking your fist in God's face and saying, God, I don't like the way you've made things operate. God is sovereign. And what's happening in your life and in this school is God's sovereign purpose. To complain against it is to complain against God. And to complain against God is the most serious of all things. There are the abuses. Lusting after evil things. Falling back into the patterns of your old idolatrous lifestyle. Immorality. Sexual sin. That's what that means. And then that, that terrible sin of presumption, which tests God to see how far you'll go. And then complaining. Complaining. Flirting with the world. It's idols, it's morals, pushing the patience of God, complaining when you don't get what you want the way you want it. Let me tell you, that's a tragic way to live your life. And if you live that way, then God may just remove the blessing altogether. That takes us to the admonition in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And what are we supposed to learn? Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, you better be careful how you live because you think you might be getting away with it, and the fact is you might not. You might not. The subtle, deceiving lie of sin is that you can get away with it. That spiritual privilege is just going to go on and on and on and on and on. But it may not. It may not. 
God may step in and remove your privilege. You say, well, how can I stay qualified? How can I, how can I deal with the temptations to lust after evil things, to fall back into my old, life, old lifestyle, to engage in immoral conduct, to, to test God, to complain? How do I deal with those temptations? And that takes us to verse 13, which is such a fitting climax. And I want you to know, people, this puts the responsibility on you. There's no one to blame. Why? No temptation. No temptation to lust after evil things. No temptation to go back to your old lifestyle. No temptation to sexual sin. No temptation to presuming on God and testing Him. And no temptation to complain and grumble and gripe about what's happening. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to men. What does that mean? You're not getting any stuff that anybody else isn't getting. And you can't say, well, you don't know how it is, man. This is really heavy on me. Not everybody is so tempted. Yes, we are. It's just common stuff. Furthermore, the implication here is you're not getting super, superhuman temptation that's beyond your ability to deal with. No, you're just getting plain old, normal, common to man temptation. Everybody gets it, and you have the means to handle it. It's not so overpowering. That you can't deal with it. And so you are getting the kind of temptation that everybody gets. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are what? What you're able. In other words, you are getting the kind of temptation everybody gets. It is not so supernatural that you can't deal with it. God will never let you be tempted beyond what you are able to handle. But with the temptation will provide the way of what? Escape. So that you may be able to endure it. Well, that's so comforting. There's no temptation that will ever come your way that God doesn't give you a way out. But you've got to be looking for the way out, not the way in. You understand that? say, well, how do I have a perspective that looks for the way out? You've got to have a mind that's controlled by the Holy Spirit. How do you have a mind controlled by the Holy Spirit? You have a mind that's saturated with the truth of the Word of God. David said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And when you're controlled by the Word of God, I should say, when you're, when you're saturated with the Word of God, you're controlled by the Spirit of God. It's just a basic principle. This whole matter of the master's morality begins with an understanding that those who are highly privileged are highly responsible. And that the fact that God has done so much in your life is not an excuse for sin. The fact that God has done so much puts you in a very vulnerable situation. The danger of spiritual privilege is you get so fat and so comfortable and so blessed that you think you can get away with things that you can't get away with. Spiritual privilege should never lull us to sleep. It should make us watchful. Because to whom much is given, said our Lord, much is what? Required. May God help us who have been so privileged 
Young people like few young people in this world, you have been privileged to see the hand of God, to know His blessing. Don't abuse that privilege. Apply the means of grace, the spiritual weapons, to find the way out of every temptation so that you don't forfeit your privilege. Let's pray together.